Excellent. Thank you. Going to use this microphone today. I fell out with the other one a couple of weeks ago, and we haven't made up yet. So I'm just going to going to stick with this one. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, if you can turn to John chapter 10, that's where we're going to be uh, spending our time this morning, carrying on in our current teaching series that we've called Do You Know Him? And the purpose of this series, what we're doing is we're looking at what Jesus says about himself in order to gain a fuller uh, and truer picture of who he really is. You know, the best way to find out about who he is is to listen to, to what he says about himself. And uh, the way we're doing that over it's going to be seven weeks in total is we're looking at seven statements that Jesus makes about himself. And these are known as the I am statements of Jesus, uh, except at the start of each of these statements, he begins it with the words I am. And then he goes on to say things like I am uh, the light of the world. I am the bread of life. And there's seven of these things that we're looking at. And each of these statements that Jesus makes reveals something of his identity, his character, his nature and his purposes. So that's uh, what we're intending to do over this series, really to get a grasp of who Jesus is says that he is. I'm following on from Mike last week. Mike was actually in, in John 10 last week as well. Uh, so we're in the same passage of scripture. I know that for Mike, he, I think he said last week as well, it's a bit trickier when you know someone else is going to be preaching in the same passage because you don't want to step on any toes or uh, want to make sure that there's some stuff to be left. Uh, and there, there was plenty uh, for, for me to pick up this week. But Mike did a brilliant job last week. And he was looking at the statement that Jesus made where Jesus said that I am the door. And it was based around this picture of shepherding. Jesus was saying that he was the door to the sheepfold, that it's through him that sheep will enter in. I remember walking away last week and I thought to myself, I thought, wow, Mike knows a lot more about sheep than I do. He knows an awful lot about sheep. I have to say, sheep aren't really my thing. Uh, I'm more into sport. Uh, as many of you will know, I'm a big fan of American football. I know James doesn't approve necessarily, but I'm a big fan of American football. Um, so it can be hard for, for me and Mike maybe to find some common ground. Uh, you've got sheep and American football, don't go together. You could put them together, that would be interesting. Uh, see what would happen. Um, but I have to say, uh, Mike, I think I found, have found some common ground for us. I know it's well documented that you don't like sport, but I have found the American football team for you. And that team is the Los Angeles Rams. So that's for you. Thank you. <laughs> I made it myself. I didn't make it myself. I printed it off myself. Uh, so there we go. You've got yourself an American football team. Uh, whether you follow it or not, it doesn't matter. It's your team. Let's read some scripture, shall we? So let's pick up uh, John chapter 10. I'm going to start from, uh, from the beginning. So I'm going to recap what Mike covered last week as well. And so let's start from verse 1. So truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter... The sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way. That man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they didn't understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf come in and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. 
He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know my Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me because I I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, but you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father has given them to me. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Because me and Mike uh, have been over these two weeks looking at the same passage of Scripture, I re-listened to Mike's sermon in the week just to kind of refresh my mind of the things that he'd said. I remember sitting there thinking to myself, wow. I thought, I've been around for so long I can now identify people by their laughs and their coughs that I hear on the thing. It's just an observation. It's not a game that I play. Don't worry. I spend my time a lot better than that uh, when I'm at the office. I don't do this again. But it could be something, actually, that we bring in for the next Christmas social. But Mike, he began last week. He said, we need to set aside what our cultural assumptions of shepherding are, what we understand. You know, uh, for me, my understanding of, of shepherding would come from having watched one man and his dog. You know, the idea of using the, the dogs to, to herd the sheep. But Mike was saying, actually... In the time that Jesus was speaking, and in, in many places in the world today, sheep are not driven, but they're led. They're led by their shepherd who they follow. Shepherds, they call their sheep by name, and the sheep respond to that. Mike also reminded us of, I think it was Ezekiel 34, this passage of scripture where uh, it highlights unfaithful shepherds. These shepherds, that were, they, they were leading the people. But they were only in it for their own gain. There was no care in what they were doing. They were abusive. They were (coughs) self-seeking. They had really no intention of looking after the people that that they were leading. And then in Ezekiel 34, there's this this promise from God that he will, will rescue his sheep, that he will seek them out, he will find them, and he will rescue them. So actually, when Jesus claims that he is the door through which the sheep enter the fold, he's he's saying he's not just another prophet who's come to point the way to God. But he's saying, actually, I am God himself. I am the one that you have to come through in order to come back into that relationship with God. I am the one. To enter the kingdom, you have to come through me. There's no other way. <coughs> Sorry, Mark, can you give me a drink? See, Jesus, he is God's promise. He's the rescuer. Salvation can only be found in and through him. So when Jesus is saying he's the door, that's what he's saying. It's only through him can salvation be found. <coughs> this passage of scripture, thank you Mark, this passage of scripture that we've been looking at 
can be a bit puzzling because it actually seems to draw on a number of metaphors. seems a little bit confused. Jesus starts by talking about shepherds. And then he says, actually, I'm, he says, I'm the, I'm the door, I'm the way for the sheep to enter in. And then a bit later on, he says, actually, I am the good shepherd. So it seems a little bit, uh, almost a little bit confused and a, and a little bit puzzling. So we have to work our way through that. But Jesus, he's, he's using a number of metaphors that all relate to shepherding, with the sheep being represent, a representation of the people. And he's using imagery that those who were listening would have appreciated. So he's really drawing on all these pictures and all these metaphors to build this really uh, big picture of what he's trying to explain to them and what he's trying to present to them. Now verses 1 to 5, they present, uh, Jesus presents this picture to the people. It's not understood. You can just imagine looking at him kind of blankly, just like, actually, we're not quite sure where you're going with, with this. So that, then Jesus takes them on from there. And from this point on, it's not so much an explanation of what he said, but it's more of an expansion. He expands what he said. And he brings in a few more of these metaphors that he builds upon. <coughs> and then in verse 11, Jesus makes the fourth I am statement. He says, I am the good shepherd. And it's this statement that we're going to unpack together this morning. Uh, and we're going to look at the following three points. The first is Jesus, our sacrifice. Then we have Jesus, our summoner. And then Jesus, our security. So let's start with Jesus, our sacrifice. Now, when Jesus declares himself to be the good shepherd, he's establishing himself in absolute direct contrast to the unfaithful shepherds that we were hearing about last week. He's saying, you hit those unfaithful shepherds that you heard about? I am not like that. He says, I am the good shepherd. I stand in absolute contrast to those. I'm not like those that were in it for selfish gain, those that were in it for selfish ambition. He says, I am the good shepherd. Now, I think good is one of those words that it's used so often, it's so commonplace, it's kind of become a little bit ordinary. Uh, maybe it's used to describe anything from a holiday to a yoghurt, you know. It's like, how was your holiday? It was really good. How was your yoghurt? Yeah, it was really good. It can kind of lose, lose a bit of its meaning. If we were to look at the Greek word that is used, that Jesus uses in this place, the Greek word used is kalos, which can also be interpreted as noble or worthy. So Jesus, when he's saying he's the good shepherd, he's saying, I am the worthy shepherd. I am the excellent shepherd. I'm honest, true, and trustworthy. So it's good just to get a, a full idea of what Jesus is saying by using that word good. And Jesus says the good shepherd, who Jesus is claiming to be, the good shepherd, he lays down his life for the sheep. That's what a good shepherd does. See, in absolute contrast to the unfaithful shepherds that are talked about in Ezekiel 34. Does anyone here like the film Jurassic Park? The original. Some of the sequels were a bit poor, but the original is an absolute classic film. I think it was made in 1993, so what's that, like 23 years old already. Uh, but it's still one of my favourites. And there's the idea behind Jurassic Park um, <coughs> is that some, some people have found some, some dinosaur DNA. They've worked their, their kind of magic on it, uh, and they've created this... It's like a zoo. Essentially, it's a zoo full of dinosaurs. Uh, and they want to open it up for people to come around and for people to experience these dinosaurs. And uh, at the beginning of the film, they're going on a, a tour of the park. And in the, I think they're split over a couple, a couple of cars. In one of the cars, you've got uh, two children. I believe they're, they're relations of the guy who, who owns the park. And in the car with them, they've got a lawyer. He's the general counsel for the company that actually own uh, the, the genetics company that were involved. In this. So they're in one car, and then you've got another couple of people in the car behind. And then things 
uh, take a really nasty turn for the worse and the power fails, the electricity fails, or the electrics, electric fences fail, and the ty Tyrannosaurus Rex gets out of his cage. As soon as the lawyer realises what's going on, he leaves the car, he leaves the kids on their own, and he runs off and just leaves them to fend for themselves. It's all right. He gets his comeuppance. He, uh, if I remember correctly, he's sat on the toilet and the T-Rex just comes and eats him straight off the toilet. There's no biblical principle in there. I just wanted to let you know how it ends. Um, but there's a, the bit where he just... He just leaves the children, and you're watching that, and you're thinking, Why, what is this guy doing? He's leaving these kids on their own to fend for themselves. The reason he leaves them is because it's not what he's paid to do. It goes beyond his role. He's got no investment in the children. He doesn't care for them. He has no attachment to them, so he just leaves them. His priority at that point is self-preservation, looking after number one. That's all he's interested in. As he leaves the car, the girl, she just says three words. With this look of unbelief on her face, she just says, he left us. He left us. They've been abandoned to fend for themselves. A bit later on in the film, uh, they're, they're, actually, they're rescued from that situation uh, by the character played by Sam Neill. And once he, he's, he's got them to safety, and she just says over and over again, she, she can't believe it, she just says, he left us. He left us. And then Sam Neill's character replies, he looks her square in the face, and he says, but that's not what I'm going to do. So he left us, he left us. But that is not what I'm going to do. He brings safety, he brings protection. He saves them. Why? Because he cares for them and they are his priority. Above his self-preservation, they are his priority at that time. Jesus says that hired hands, those who are not shepherds themselves, but they're paid to do a job, they're paid to help out. He says that when danger approaches... When they see the wolf come in, they flee. They leave the flock exposed. They leave the flock vulnerable. They flee because they don't care for the sheep. There's no attachment there for them. It goes beyond what they're paid to do. It goes above their pay grade. It's not what they would consider their job to be. Shepherds are different to hired hands. Jesus says. He says they care for their own because the sheep are theirs. They protect them. They do not run off. They defend them and they protect them. David, before he was king of Israel, he was a shepherd. And actually we read in scripture how he fought off a lion and a bear to protect the flock. That's what shepherds do. They stand and they defend. Jesus claims that he, he lays down his life for the sheep. And that is exactly what he goes on to do from this point. See, all of us are exposed and vulnerable and in danger. Because while we were created for a relationship with God, we found ourselves alienated from him by the things that we've done, the things that we've thought, by worshipping things other than himself. That relationship that we were created for, uh, we, we've been estranged from him. And we're in danger because unless something comes to put that situation right, Unless something changes in where we're reconciled to God, Scripture tells us that the penalty for those things that we've done, thought, said, is that we're going to is, is death. That physically we will die, and spiritually we'll be separated from God forever. So, like sheep who are left exposed and vulnerable, 
We are very much like that. All of us have been in that situation and been in that place. But Jesus came in order to take that punishment on himself so that we could be reconciled back to God. Before Jesus is arrested and then tried and crucified, we we read uh, in a couple of the Gospels about he spends some time in a place called Gethsemane and he it's like just the realization of what he's going to face what it will mean for him to bear that punishment on our behalf <coughs> just the weight of it is on him and he's just pleading before God he says God anything father anything is possible for you if possible will you take this from me so that I don't have to go through this a couple of years ago uh, James was preaching on this on this uh, particular situation that Jesus found himself in and he got me to jump on his back I think he had, you nearly fell out, properly crumpled up and fell over but I jumped on his back and he did it just as a, a, an illustration of the, the weight and the magnitude of what Jesus felt that it was like just a, it was just this real physical uh, magnitude of this burden that Jesus was carrying it was hugely powerful what James bought I still remember how I remember feeling when he bought it Because it was no small thing that Jesus went through in that moment. Just the anguish and everything that he went through. But the title of that sermon that James was preaching was Jesus plus obedience. It was about how in the face of what Jesus, in in the face of what Jesus had before him, he was still obedient to what the Father had said. Because while he'd said, Father, if there's any other way, will you take this from me? But not my will, but what your will is. See, no one took Jesus' life from him. It was far from accidental. Jesus gave up his life. It was a decision that he made. It was a choice he made. He said, Father, actually, whatever your will is, I'm going to go through with it. If it means that I have to give myself in this way, then I'm going to do it. Because that's what it's going to take. And I'm going to be obedient to what you've called me to. He gave it up. He laid it down because that was the will of the Father. He laid down his life. Jesus says, the good shepherd will lay down his life that he may take it up again. After Jesus was crucified, he was laid in the tomb. Three days later, he rose again. It's so important that we understand that the resurrection was no afterthought. It wasn't that God suddenly thought, okay, Jesus is in the tomb. What do we do now? Okay, where do we go from here? It was no afterthought, the resurrection. Jesus, his death was with the resurrection in view. It was always there. It was always in view. He died in order to rise. Jesus died in order to rise. Because in doing so, the power of sin, the power of death, was defeated. And actually, the resurrection is of absolute paramount importance to us. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting from verse 17, says, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits, or the first of those who have fallen asleep. As by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Because Jesus was resurrected, Because Jesus rose again from the dead. That is where our hope is. 
Because if that happened to Jesus, for those of us who are in Christ, that is going to be true of us as well. He is the first fruits. He is the first one. In order that many will follow. As the good shepherd, Jesus doesn't leave his sheep exposed and vulnerable like the hired hand does. Instead, what Jesus does is he gathers his sheep to himself. Gathers them to himself. Which leads us on to our second point this morning, which is Jesus, our summoner. Again, as Mike shared with us last week from his extensive sheep knowledge, sheep are not driven, they are led, they follow their shepherd. There's a recognition of the voice, so there's a call that the shepherd makes, and then there's a response on behalf of the sheep. The word summons and, and and summoner, they're not words that I would tend to use. It's not part of my everyday vocabulary. Uh, I haven't just chosen them today because they begin with an S, because it fits nicely with all the other things I say. It's more than that. It's because to summons, it, it, mean, it is to put out a call. But from what I can understand, it, it seems that there's an intention to gather. It's a call with an intention to gather, to draw people together, to summons, to, to, to gather a people together. See, Jesus is gathering his flock Jesus is gathering a people together. He's establishing a people for himself. In verse 14 and 15 of John 10 that we read together, we see this beautiful expression of the relationship between Jesus and his father. He says, I know the father and the father, and the father knows me. It's just really uh, just wonderful, just the way that they, they relate to one another and they delight in one another. But then Jesus says, actually, this overflows that Jesus... This overflows to those that Jesus calls personally, to each one. Mike, again, Mike said last week, uh, he calls you by name. It's not that Jesus is just calling a group together. He's calling individuals together. I think you said something amazing, like actually we find our individual worth in God because we are of value to him. And for each of those who have been called, we get to partake in that relationship. Just as Jesus knows the Father, As the Father knows Jesus, we get to partake in that relationship with him. To know Jesus, to be known by him. Bruce Milne, he uh, wrote a commentary on on Book of John. And relating to verse 27, which begins, My sheep listen to my voice. He then goes on to say that the call of Christ has brought them into a new relationship with him. Which is why Jesus says, I know them. So we've been brought into a new relationship. And then he says that this is a relationship which in turn leads to a new lifestyle. Which is why Jesus says, they follow me. So, the sheep, they listen to my voice. People are led into a new relationship. He knows them. And because they're in a new relationship, this leads into a new lifestyle. They follow me. So we hear the call of Christ. He knows us and we follow him. New relationship which leads to a new lifestyle. Now the Pharisees... Uh, They would have been uh, a group of of Jews who would have really known the law. They would have known the requirements that God had given his people in under the old uh, covenant, under under the old promise. They would have known exactly how, uh, what their expectation was of how people should be living. They were in the crowd, they were listening to Jesus. As I say, they had the law. They had a, a really solid understanding of how the law was to be applied, what people's lives were meant to look like, what the law looked like in practice. They would have been very competent at teaching. They would have been very competent at at instructing people in how to live. But for them, living meant following the rules. 
It's what living was. It was about following the rules. Jesus teaches that living means following the master. Very, very different. It's not about following the rules. It's about following the master. The thing we'll find, though, when we follow the master, when we follow Jesus, there is an expectation of what our life should look like. This, uh, Jesus, through many places, says this is what a Christian life will look like. These are the expectations of how we should be, how we should relate to God, how we should relate to one another, how we should relate to those outside of the church. So there are expectations, but it doesn't come from a, you have to follow the rules. Jesus says, actually, you have to follow me. It's so hugely, hugely different. Milne puts it like this. He says that it's having a living relationship with the living Lord. That's what we're called to. When Jesus calls his sheep to him, he's calling them to a living relationship with the living, with the living Lord. To follow him is to be obedient to him, to go where he goes, to lead where he leads, to do the things that he calls you to do. Now, in verse 16 uh, of the passage that we've just looked at, of this situation where God says, actually, there are some, uh, Jesus says, there are some uh, who are not of this fold that I want to call in to become a part of this as well. And he says, I'm going to make one flock under one shepherd. Now, for the people who were listening, the Jewish people that had gathered, their understanding up until this point was that God had called a people to himself. Uh, we read about it in Exodus 6. So when the Israelites were in captivity in Egypt, Jesus makes a uh, God makes a promise that he's going to deliver them from Egypt. And he says, you will be my people and I will be your God. So he's called a nation to himself. So earlier on in this passage of scripture, when Jesus is talking about the fact that he is the door, that he's calling a flock to himself, the understanding of the people would have been that it, potentially their understanding would, would have been that it would have been out of the Jewish nation. It would have been out of the Jewish people that Jesus was calling a flock to himself. But now Jesus is saying, actually, it's not about a particular nation or it's not about a particular race anymore. I'm going to be calling in other people from other nations, from other uh, backgrounds, from other cultures uh, and to create one, one flock, a united flock under one shepherd. Matthew 28, Jesus, we, we, what we would know as the Great Commission, Jesus gives a command to his followers, to his disciples. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Jesus is creating a flock. He's bringing a flock to himself that is now universal. It's not about geography or borders or race. It's a universal flock that he's called into himself. Revelation 7, uh, in the book of Revelation, is, is about a vision that John has uh, where God reveals um, some, uh, a lot of things to him about when, when Jesus is going to return and, and to, to gather the church to himself. And part of the vision he sees in Revelation 7, he says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This is what the flock that Jesus is calling to himself is going to look like. From every nation, from every tribe, from every people group, from every language, such diversity. A universal flock, one flock under one shepherd. And all of them declaring together with one voice, salvation belongs to our God. The common call that unites uh, people together, regardless of background or race or nationality, what, you, what is united through Jesus, this call that salvation belongs 
to our God. Which is going to lead us on to our third and final point this morning, which is Jesus, our security. In verse 27 and 28, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. We looked at that a little bit already. And then he goes on to say, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. In Jesus, there is a gift of eternal life. Not something that can be earned, not something that is deserved at all, but a gift that is given. So when Jesus says, I am the door, through which the sheep enter the fold. There is only one way into this, into this universal flock, into this kingdom of Jesus, and it's, and it's through Jesus, and it's through him we receive the gift of eternal life. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 16 to 17, says that for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, it is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God lives forever so this world all of the things that are of the world it's all going to pass away at some point whether it's desires and passions be the, the, uh, a lot of it will, will be physical passing away as well but whoever does the will of God will live forever it's a promise that is made to those who follow Jesus those in, who are in Christ they are no longer a part of the passing world they're no longer a part of what is perishable. They're now a part of what is permanent. Isn't that wonderful? That in Christ we go from being part of something that is perishable that will pass away to being established as part of something that is permanent, that will endure, that will last. Jesus says that where the thieves come to steal, kill and destroy, he came that we may have life and life in abundance. Life in all its fullness. There's a guy named D.A. Carson. He uh, has written a, a lot of books, a lot of commentaries as well. And on, he makes a note that the life that Jesus' true disciples enjoy, it's not to be construed as more time to fill. So it's not just merely everlasting life and that it's more time that we have to, we have to fill. He says, but it is life as, at its scarcely imagined best. It is life to be lived. That is what Jesus offers us. Life at its scarcely imagined best. It's not just going to be a matter of having to find more things to do in order to fill the time. This is life where we are really, really living. Jesus calls his followers to a rich, full, joyful life. One that is overflowing with meaningful activity. (coughs) Under the personal favour and blessing of God. United together in fellowship with his people. That is what the life that Jesus has intended for his people is. Now, I didn't read all of verse 28 just a moment ago. I read a little bit of it. So let's pick up. This is a a really significant part at the end of it. So we've read where Jesus says, I will give them eternal life and they will never perish. And then he goes on to say, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. For I am the fa- and the Father are one. This is absolute security. There is absolute security in Jesus. Whatever you may feel, whatever may be told to you, whatever lies the enemy will try and throw your way, know this, you will never be snatched out of his hand. If you are in Jesus' flock, you will never be snatched out 
of his hand. He's not the hired hand who abandons the flock in the face of danger. When force comes, you are secure in him. He will never let you go. This is a promise that Jesus makes. It's not questionable. Jesus says it matter-of-factly. Those who are in his flock will never be snatched out of his hand. We sing a song in this church. We've sung, it's been around for quite a while now. Called in Christ Alone. And when I was... I'm sure it must, there's a, a verse in that which must have been inspired by, by, this, by this verse. So I just wanted to read it. Just remind us of it. It says, No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home here in the power of Christ. I'll stand. There is absolute security in Jesus. He will not abandon us. He will not forsake us. He will not leave us to fend for ourselves. Can we have the band up, please? And we'll head back into a time of worship in just a moment. Last week, um, when Mike was speaking, I hope I've got this right, he said that people have always had a hope of a solution to the world's problems. There are people are always looking for a solution. I think that's when you were, were talking about um, political regimes and revolutions. People just want something to change, that what they see as the problems of the world would be done away with, that there would be resolution to that. And then there was a question for growth groups last week, which was, where do people put their hope? In who do people put their hope? In what do people put their hope? It could be revolutions. could be in politics. could be in leaders. could be in relationships or wealth or career. could be many different things. I'm sure you would have had a lot of different answers in groups this week. But I'm pretty sure that they will leave us all in the same place. Saying, he left us. They left us. It left us. But Jesus, as the good shepherd, says, but that is not what I'm going to do. He says, that's not what I'm going to do. He's not like the hired hand who runs in the face of danger, who's only interested in self-preservation. This is Jesus, the good shepherd, who laid down his life for his sheep, but laid it down in order to take it back up again. This is Jesus who, in the face of of terror and of uh, the absolute magnitude of our punishment who in the Garden of Gethsemane says even in spite of what I'm going to face Father God if this is your will then I'm going to be obedient to your will because I'm not going to leave these people where they're at Jesus is the, the, the solution to our problem he's the one who reconciles us back to the Father and he's gathering a people to himself. He's gathering a flock, one flock under one shepherd, united with that common cry. That salvation belongs to our God. Shall we stand? Let's come back to worship.
respond to 